Welcome to another episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we've got a great poem for you today. But first, we have been meaning to do this for a literal millennium and have every recording failed to get around to it. But we have been keeping track of our responses, some clarifications, and we just wanted to share them briefly because we, we found them helpful and maybe you'll find them helpful too. Yeah, we love hearing from people who listen to the podcast and it's always interesting to hear different takes on the poems that we talk about. And we love knowing that you guys are both listening to the podcast, but also engaging with the material and having all kinds of thoughts and ideas about it. So Connor, I know that you got uh, a response to one of our poems. Take it away. I did, yeah. So if you recall, uh, we did a Louise Glick poem, Presque Isle, which involved a sort of uh, memory of maybe like a honeymoon scene. And there's a part in the poem where uh, the speaker sees a man and the boy on the beach and we were debating and sort of had decided, well, I had been persuasive in saying that the man and the boy were not related to the speaker, but just a random person. And then, shout out to my one and only daddy-o, Brent Stratton, emailed me and said, just listen to episode 13. You ask whether the speaker is related to the man and boy. I saw in someone's post that she wrote that entire collection of poems one summer during the breakup of her marriage. And they had a son born in 1973. So my guess is yes. So they probably are still related, or they are related. Also, my dad mentioned that the son of Louise Glick may still be a sommelier in San Francisco. So if you're ever in the area, just drop by, ask about the Cabernets, ask about Presque Isle, and you know, you'll have a fine evening. It's like a secret poet code. To discern whether or not your sommelier is Louise Glick's progeny. Yep. Like, hey, does the words Presque Isle mean anything to you? Yeah. It's like does, a secret agent. <laughs> does the 1973 uh, Sauvignon pair well with a jar of white peonies? Ooh, double secrets. Double <laughs> secrets. I love it. I love it. Um, you got another one, didn't you? I did. Yes. This one was about Sashadri's nursing home which was sort of that three-part poem that started as a lyric poem, and then the second section was like this academic medical speech, and then the third section was kind of like a dialogue-y type thing. And there was a part um, where they say, Purdy thinks she looks purdy. And we had speculated rather goofily about why it was spelled P-U-R-T-Y rather than P-U-R-D-Y. And shout out to the one and only... Ida Kunrad said that if it's spelled purdy with a T, that Indians often pronounce the T sound as hard rather than a D sound like Americans do. So there you go. Yeah, that was a really neat one. I believe I was primarily the one who was a bit too flippant and dismissive about the spelling, and I regret it, and I'm glad to be corrected, and also <laughs> to have that insight into, into why it might have been the way it was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We have gotten responses to a couple poems from the actual poets themselves, which is super exciting. And if you're ever wondering whether any good comes from Twitter, 
at least from my perspective, this is pretty cool because um, it's great to know that these poets are like actually hearing our stuff and maybe enjoying it. One response that we got from a poet was to Sentence, which was by Eduardo C. Corral. And he wrote back to us, uh, really interesting, because in the episode we talked about thinking that the poem itself was kind of about an experience of getting a tattoo. And he wrote back to us that you got the reason why I used the verb pivot in the poem. The tattooing angle is interesting, not my intention, which was super fascinating because both Connor and I independently arrived at that idea. And we're both like pretty convinced if you listen to the episode that we'd like, we'd nailed it. And I think this is a useful illustration of something, which is that in doing this podcast, we're really just like, these are our thoughts on the poems, their ideas. They're by no means the be all and end all of how to read a poem. It's really just us looking at these works and making from them what meaning we can. And you know, we do that partially because we want to encourage all of you listening to do the exact same. And we love being wrong. I mean, that's the best part. It's being wrong. You get to learn more when you're wrong. Yeah. So those were most of our clarifications that we got. So we're going to try to be better going forward of addressing these, you know, as they come rather than, you know, six to eight months later. So please keep your comments coming. We, we really uh, enjoy thinking about that. Ben. Yeah, it's great. We love hearing from you. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us you agree. Give us a different reading of a poem. We don't care anything you got. We love it. You can tell us on Twitter. We're at Close Talking. You can email us at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. Those are probably the two quickest and easiest ways to get in touch. And we'd love to hear from you. So, you know, yep. let us know. Yep. Yeah. So without further ado, we have a great poem. This is one of my personal faves that I have been trying to teach whenever I'm teaching poetry. It's by Lee Young Lee. And it's called Eating Together. And just a quick bio about Lee Young Lee. The poem was first published in the Iowa Review in 1985 and then came out in his debut collection, which is called Rose uh, in 1986. And I think he studied at Pittsburgh under Gerald Stern, who is one of our great poets. He was born in 1957 um, in Indonesia to Chinese parents and then moved to the U.S. and has been in the U.S. since he was seven. And he's won a Lannan Literary Award, a Whiting Award, a lot of push carts, NEA, Guggenheim. And without further ado, I guess I got to read the poem. I think I said without further ado two times already, which is not a good sign. Well, without further ado. <laughs> All right. Eating together. In the steamer is the trout, seasoned with slivers of ginger, two sprigs of green onion and sesame oil. We shall eat it with rice for lunch. Brothers, sister, my mother who will taste the sweetest meat of the head, holding it between her fingers deftly, the way my father did weeks ago. Then, he lay down to sleep like a snow-covered road winding through pines older than him without any travelers and lonely for no one. Before getting into the more maybe technical, formal thoughts that I have, first initial emotional read of the poem is it's kind of a poem that's thinking about how do you grieve or at least remember uh, someone close to you, a loved one or family member uh, who's passed away. 
Um, in this poem, the father has passed away. And for me personally, this makes me think of this, what I think is not uncommon when there are sort of these ordinary moments that all of a sudden that person is sort of a fixture of that ordinary moment that you had sort of taken for granted. And then all of a sudden in that setting, their absence is sort of very prominent. And so in this, in this poem, I sort of read this lunch scene as something where the father would have been, you know, very present, of course. And so that sort of triggers this absence in a, in a powerful way. And I just personally remember like at Christmas, you know, my grandma Rita was always sitting in the living room in my aunt and uncle's house. And we were just like running around like crazy little cousin kids. And I just remember when she passed away the first Christmas, it was like, that was when I sort of most, the loss sort of hit me where she was not in the chair that she was always in. And that living room was suddenly not like this central sort of space where like people hovered in around. Anyway, and so I feel like this poem lets me live that experience. Yeah, that's interesting because I had sort of a similar thought, but it was particularly around gathering after a loss. And I was thinking about my own grandmother and after she passed away, my parents and I traveled out to where she lived. We were there, we stayed with my uncle and there were several, you know, we you know went to the, to the graveyard and everything. But my main memories of that trip are when all of us got together at different restaurants and had meals together. Conversations that we had around those various somewhat random tables and it's interesting to think about food and the act of eating as a coming together because that happens in the poem you see everybody uh, and everyone gets named in order about sort of who's there which as you're pointing out shines a light on who isn't there but it also has the dual effect of also labeling who all is coming together to to grieve together which i thought was neat and i love that you pulled out that alternate aspect of it yeah well so for me the element of ordinary scene where everyone would be present uh, leading into the grief helps me make sense of a lot of the choices that the poem and the poet made that i think otherwise sort of might seem odd for one, the title is Eating Together, and yet the, the most notable part is that there is some togetherness, but it's, it's markedly there's this huge absence. Also, and this is, this is something that I kind of like to emphasize when I'm teaching it, is the, the level of detail and duration of the kind of two moments in the poem is sort of very striking because there's basically two things that happen in the poem. There's the meal and then there's the, the father laying down to sleep part. And it's a 12 line poem. The first seven to eight and a half lines are only about the meal and about the meal in like a really intensely specific way. It's, you know, in the steamer is the trout that has slivers of ginger and there's two sprigs of green onion and uh, sesame oil. And that's like three lines where you could easily say, we're eating sesame ginger trout, and then you'd be done with it. But where there's like, you can see the sprigs of green onion. And so there's a very concrete development of this meal that's sort of very deliberate. And then the other things that I notice are in the beginning, we have present tense where we're in the steamer is the trout, and so we're, it, we're sort of seeing the speaker in the present moment 
looking at this uh, meal that's being made. And then we move into the future tense. We shall eat it for lunch, which is sort of interesting. We're not even in the moment of like of the eating, which is kind of interesting. And then at the end, we move into the past tense. Then he lay down to sleep. And again, you know, as the, the meal gets, you know, eight lines or whatever, the father that moment gets three and a half, maybe basically. There's basically two times as much time spent on the meal than is spent on the father. There's a, a few reasons for this, but a, a couple other choices that are made is the line breaks are also very intentional. So even when the father is introduced, the fact of his passing away is deferred for as long as possible. So the seventh line is holding it in between her fingers, then line break deftly, the way my father did line break weeks ago. Then he laid down line break to sleep like a snow-covered road. And so we, we move in, I guess we move into the past tense first, the way my father did weeks ago. But that first instance, we don't know that the father has passed away. It's just we know that he did that weeks ago uh, and that we knew that he did it. So in a way, there is a kind of eating together a togetherness that's sustained for as long as possible until the fact of his passing comes comes in. Because when he when it's then he lays down, well, he could be just laying down, I don't know, to do whatever. It's not evident that he's laying down to die or whatever. It could just be an illness or something that's kept him away from whatever this gathering is. Exactly. And so I think my the first kind of initial reason for all these choices, which I think are maybe a little strange, if you sort of think about it just on the face of it, you know, if it's going to be about the father passing away, which I think is very clear by the end, why do you spend so much time and detail on something that doesn't even involve him and is just about food? And I think for me, it helps to think of the scene when this is what reminds you of him being gone. And so I feel like we need to be as the reader in the kitchen with the speaker before we know the information so that we feel sort of the loss as the speaker feels it. And the, the way that the transition to the father happens is kind of works like that, or it happens, it pivots on the sweetest head of the meat, which is presumably the best part of the dish. And so the father, I'm assuming sort of as the head of the family or whatever, would sort of get the best part. But now the mother is going to have the best part because the father's not there anymore. And that's sort of what reminds the speaker of what's happened. Yeah, I think that's right on because that's also where the tenses start to shift and it goes from either the present or the future, the people who are alive looking forward, a meal that's yet to happen, uh, you know, a conversation that will happen after the meal, life that's going on into the past. And then to someone who is now the physicality, the laying down of the body to sleep is forever in the past, however much the memory might carry on. This is about the physical absence of the person. I also noticed uh, what you were pointing out, that so much of the poem is given over to to not like the main event, you might say. Because even the poem, 
is titled Eating Together. It's pointing you towards those first, really there's three sentences in the poem and the first two of the three deal with the meal. And then the third one deals with, then he lay down to sleep like a snow covered road. That third sentence is where it completely moves away from what is actually an incredibly specific description, as you were saying. I mean, it's down to the specific ingredients of the dish. Everyone who's coming is labeled. It's brothers, sister, and my mother. Like, Everything is categorized up until that point. And then after that second sentence ends and it gets to the reality of the loss, it completely launches off into less specific language, which I thought was interesting because so often that's how a gathering like that a few weeks after someone's passing might be, because that's kind of could be the turning point from it being an explicitly discussed and referenced loss to one that just kind of hangs in the air and is not specific and is not everyone saying, you know, our father is missing or my husband's missing. It's just the fact of their missingness is there, but it might not get named or the extent to which it is named is not explicit. And that's in fact how the poem moves as well. Yeah, no, I like that you bring up that less specific language because this is sort of what I like to teach about this poem is sort of there's three big things that I think poets need to, well, not, these are not the only three th big things, but. There are three big things, which is like concrete detail, this idea of movement and this idea of pressure. And concrete detail, I think, is just A, you just need to do it because all you have is the language and you need to get the, the reader into the poem. And so this is a great example of like such specific detail. The second is movement, which sort of my one of my poet friends, Hannah, was talking to me about as a kind of big way to think about poems, that everything, the energy of the poem and the, the dynamism of the poem is all about how the poem moves, where the turns are. You know, you're in this place and then you're suddenly in that place. And, and the way that the poem achieves or makes that movement is how the poem kind of really gets its life. And I think the, the reason why maybe the word movement is is uh, relevant for poems rather than other genres is, I think that that's, I mean, big claim here, which I maybe have already said, but I like to say a lot, which is not my idea at all, but still a large claim, is that I think all of art is basically patterns and disruption of patterns. So you set a thing and then you change the thing. You know, in, in music, it's, you have your verse and then you have your chorus. In a movie, you know, you have your your rising action and you have your climax, which is a you know big pivot point or whatever. And in a way, I think all art is about movement. But one thing that's interesting about poems is that they're not always moving in a narrative sense, the way that a more like a fiction or film or TV sort of those are going to be where their movement is, is in the story or in like a character's sort of sense of themselves. But poems can move imagistically, they can move rhythmically, they can move narratively. It's sort of like the difference between a real world elevator that takes you up and down, like that would be a narrative story or a nonfiction essay that's trying to make a concrete thesis point and the Willy Wonka elevator that'll take you in whatever direction you need to go whenever you want. <laughs> Up, down, left, right. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's poetry. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. So, like, I think a general helpful way to read the poem, read any poem, is where are the turns? Where is it moving? And then what is the nature of the movement? And so, in this poem, I mean, this sort of gets to pressure, is that this poem moves 
from very literal language, very concrete, specific, non-figurative language to totally figurative, abstract language. It moves from talking about sprigs of onion to then he lay down to sleep like a snow-covered road winding through pines older than him without any travelers and lonely for no one. And so that shift of literal to figurative, I think helps also allow the pivot to happen very efficiently because suddenly we're reading just a totally different kind of language. And the other thing that this does, I think, is it helps that last part withstand sort of the pressure that it's under. To me, I think about pressure is very important because you have such a small space and sometimes you want to emphasize certain things by giving it more importance or putting it at the end. But if you do that, then they have to be able to withstand the pressure that it's under. For example, when we talked about Marie Howe's What the Living Do, uh, that last line, I am living, I remember you, is like a third of the length of literally all the lines before it, which are really long. And so that poem last line has to be able to withstand sort of the pressure of being so much shorter and at the end. And so here, I think Lee's poem, it's moved to make the sort of part about the father so much shorter and at the end, it has to be able to withstand sort of that pressure of that sudden sh shift that also is then immediately taken away. And so I think his use of figurative language gives it a, a separate texture that allows it to bear the weight of sort of an equal weight of the eight lines that came before it. That's really interesting. I love all of that. But I think it's interesting that you said it was a sudden shift because I actually found it to be a fairly gentle shift as the poem moves along because you do start at the beginning with very concrete food in the first sentence. Then the second sentence introduces people and then the third sentence is the person who's missing. And the idea of the missing is actually planted at the end of that second sentence. And so I found that to be a really elegant way of moving through those pivot points and shifts because they're sort of gradually happening in a way that you almost don't realize up until the biggest shift because even though it's a short poem and it doesn't take long to read through, as I was reading through it the first time, I felt the movement that you're talking about. I felt it shifting as I was going going through it. No, that's a really good point. Probably his other poems show this too as one of his big strengths is it. the poem feels very natural. And so the, the movement, you don't notice the poem sort of moving until it's already moved in a way. Like by the end, at least when I read it, I'm kind of like, I, it's sort of, I'm startled by the end because I, I didn't realize I had been taken somewhere else until I was like already way in there. And that actually, I just want to read this part. There's this foreword that Gerald Stern has to the Lee's first book, Rose, that I thought was sort of interesting. I have tried to discover the art in these poems. This is Gerald Stern. To see how one line moves into the next, how one stanza flows into another, how the energy and tension is maintained, why it works better in some poems than in others. He is a difficult poet to analyze. The technique is not only not transparent, but there is a certain effortlessness about the writing that disguises the complexity of technique, which I think is like pretty right on. Yeah. There's even little things going on in this poem that just make it really cool. Like even the very concrete part of the poem is where some of the language is most exciting, like seasoned with slivers of ginger. 
that's just a sonically great line. That's the second line of the poem. It's the part that's just describing like a recipe, but it's kind of the coolest language on a sound level that's going on until maybe sweetest meat or lonely for no one in terms of resonant sounds going on in the poem seasoned with slivers of ginger is like, all right. Um, <laughs> which is a really neat part of this poem too, is that as it does move from concrete to more imagistic language, even in the concrete language, Lee Young Lee is finding ways to make that concrete language special and different. No, I totally agree. And I'm glad you brought that up. Another example of that is the part so the mother will taste the sweetest meat of the head and then holding it between her fingers, line break deftly the way my father did weeks ago. And I love that line break because it, it really zooms in. Like you see the speaker sort of noticing the mom, like hold the meat and the use of the word deftly. And then being, but being the first word on the next line is such a, subtle good move because it's like the deafness of how the mother holds the meat is the thing that like the mother's technique is what reminds the speaker of the father in that you can sort of see both of their fingers holding that that meat like very vividly um by that sort of like subtle sort of word positioning with the lines and then even uh the end is so interesting but the the first part that jumps out at me is this the last line without any travelers and lonely for no one there's like so much tension in that where the two statements the first one is that it's totally empty there's nothing there and yet he's not lonely lonely for no one and that also is like such a strange way to say it because it's like you could say without any travelers but not lonely or something but it actually is is lonely for no one or something. It begins with saying that he's lonely, but it's like, but the, even the lack of loneliness is defined by its absence. Definitely. Yeah, that whole last couple of lines is really incredible. It's not concrete language, but at the same time, it paints such a clear picture for you. Uh, the picture it's painting is not actually what it's describing, but the skill with which that image is rendered of a snow-covered road with pines by it is like instant, which mm -hmm. is really cool. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I had one other thought. There's a lot of reasons to pick the subject of eating together, but I was thinking specifically about how food is a very intimate way that people often show that they care by cooking a meal for someone else. Sharing your food is often sharing some piece of your cultural heritage, sharing something about yourself that you really enjoy. It's often a fairly intimate thing. This is clearly between family members. It's addressing loss, very intimate. But I was struck by the fact that food is also uniquely impermanent in a poem that deals so much with grief and loss. To have it be centered around a meal that is created, occurs, and then vanishes much the way human life is is transient and oftentimes life happens in the meeting of other people the same way that this meal is given its meaning by the the meeting of the people around it uh, i was struck by that connection as i was reading through it after i'd read through it a couple of times that was sort of like a, a third a third or fourth time through it occurred to me that this meal will also be gone and then the dishes will be the reminder of its happening the same way that uh, the absence of the father is a reminder of his having been there. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I like that a lot. 
My only other random thought about food is I, in my own poetry, I realize that I lean on food imagery, perhaps like a crutch, but I realize that it's because when you're thinking about concrete detail that appeals to the senses, food is like a triple threat because you can taste it, you can see it, and you can smell it. And then it also has sort of that built-in sort of meal uh, scenic connotations. So food for thought. All right, we got to cut that. That's oh! so bad. That's so bad. <laughs> That's staying all the way in. Oh, that was man. brilliant. No, that was... Food for thought, indeed. Good food wow. for thought, Connor. Thank you for providing us with that. Food <laughs> for thought. You can keep any of those. <laughs> oh, I'm trash. I'm trash. Oh, oh God. Master General over here. Oh, God. I love ah. it. I love it. Very bad. Very bad. Um, should we, uh, on that very humiliating note, read the poem again? Yeah, let's hear it again. Eating together. In the steamer is the trout, seasoned with slivers of ginger, two sprigs of green onion, and sesame oil. We shall eat it with rice for lunch, brothers, sister, my mother who will taste the sweetest meat of the head, holding it between her fingers deftly, the way my father did weeks ago. Then he lay down to sleep like a snow-covered road, winding through pines older than him, without any travelers, and lonely for no one. 